millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott. 609,000. That's how many podcasts are out there today, according to the latest research. So much to listen to, but not all of these shows are any good. So each week I stick on the headphones, listen to hours of audio, talk way too loudly to lots of people as I do so, and share the best things I hear with you. This week, domestic detective stories in heavyweight. Rob's mom is quick to confirm... That's true. You are the broken arm, but I'm just reading this verbatim. She, my mother, can't type worth a crap. The chef Yotam Otalangi cooks for some famous guests. I read that you're the nicest man in Britain. Is That's that a true? slur. I... It's a terrible <laughs> slur, Yotam. I have to live with this, you know? Fierce Girls tell stories about inspiring Aussie women. When the spotlight hit little Helen, she knew that's where she belonged. And that's where she stayed. A daily news show from Canada covering Google's plans to use Toronto as a testing lab for cities of the future. Depending on who you ask, Sidewalk Toronto is either the solution to our urban woes or a techno-utopian Trojan horse. And finally... Why is a Maori and a Samoan in a shower in New Zealand eating Japanese chicken? A lot of therapists will be asking us the same thing. (laughs) Eating fried chicken in the shower. And next time you hear something good, then do let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. If you could revisit one important moment from your life, a time when things went wrong or when a decision was made that still haunts you today, would you want to go back to try to make things right? In Heavyweight, Jonathan Goldstein tries to coax people into facing up to these uncomfortable life events. And sometimes he really does seem to be fixing something. His role in all of this is quite difficult to explain. He's part detective, part therapist, part narrator. And he cleverly insinuates himself into these stories of second chances, lingering on the awkward moments and times when things don't quite go according to plan. This is the start of the third season of Heavyweight, released in October, and it's an episode called Rob. My friend Rob Corddry is a famous actor, and the fact you think I'm resentful is ridiculous. No, I'm afraid that says more about you than it does about me. I guess you could say Robert and I have both done pretty well. He works with famous movie stars like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and I work with famous podcast editors like Jorge The Rock Collection Just. And boy, does he have a lot of amethyst. Rob was a correspondent on The Daily Show, 
and stars in film franchises like Hot Tub's Time Machine 1 and 2, and I star in Heavyweight, the podcast you're listening to right now. So good for Rob, and good for me. I don't even know why we're still talking about this. Because after all, it wasn't Dwayne Johnson who Rob recently approached with a unique problem. It was me. Aside from a pocket full of noogies and karate chops, I guess there wasn't a thing the great The Rock could do for Robert. Rob is more your showbiz name, right? But it's also my name. It is? Yeah. Because of showbiz opportunities, Rob can't leave Hollywood, so he phones me from a studio in L.A. Hey, gentlemen. Start whenever you want, and we'll just keep rolling. Once his studio operator, Laura, gets us rolling, Rob tells me his tale of woe. It all began with his daughter, Sloane. My daughter is 11, and she tripped over a log and broke her arm. Sloane was at school, and she tripped over a log and fell. Which was exactly how I broke my arm when I was a kid. When Rob was around his daughter's age, he was out in the woods with his Boy Scout troop, and he also tripped over a log and broke his arm, exactly like Sloane. Did you tell her this story about how when you were a kid, the same thing had happened to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every connection I, I make with her, I kind of cherish, and I thought that was just a funny one, that we broke our arms in, in the same exact way. So, uh... She went and got a, a cast, uh, and I forwarded the picture. It was this adorable picture of my daughter in her purple cast, and I sent, I sent the picture to my family. Rob texted the photo to his brother, his sister, his mother, and his father. And so, a text thread began. Do you have the texts on you? I do. I think I do, yeah. It might take me a second to find sure, them. Sure, yeah. Okay, is this it? Just trying to find the beginning. It's so long. Um, there's a lot about my daughter here. Um, a lot of, oh, man, that poor little girl and, and so forth. When the family asked how Sloan had broken her arm, Rob excitedly told them about the weird coincidence. And that's when Rob's troubles began. My mother immediately shot back, you never broke your arm. My mother said, I do not remember that at all. Laura, do you remember that? Because my sister is the, the keeper of memories. In a family, each member has their role, the thing that defines them. Laura's role is keeper of memories. And immediately, she texted back, Don't recall any of this. A second later, Rob's father weighed in with ridicule. Was that the camping trip where you broke your arm and it healed overnight? Rob shot back. I had a cast for weeks, exclamation point. Next, Rob's younger brother Nate chimed in. Oh boy, here we go. Another I broke my arm, I broke my arm story. Look, I'm the broken arm guy. That's my role. In a family, those agreed-upon roles are reinforced through agreed-upon stories. Rob says the Cordrys have about a half a dozen chestnuts that get told over and over. One of the biggies is about young Nate and how he broke his arm twice. 
Rob's mom is quick to confirm. That's true. You are the broken arm, but... I'm just reading this verbatim. She, my mother can't type worth a crap. And then she wrote right after that, broken arm guy. I don't have my glasses on. I was texting with them for about an hour afterwards, and everyone in my family swears that I never broke my arm. This, in spite of Rob's absolute certainty that he did break his arm. It really, it made me angry. It's very uh, invalidating. I felt like, you know, my mother didn't remember this experience, this, this, that her son was in pain and, and had to be taken to the hospital and was, and was in a cast and for a long time, you know, and I, I think I felt, uh, Um, I I felt, I don't know, forgotten. Rob has crystal clear memories of the day it happened. I was on a camp out. My my troop, my Boy Scout troop, would go on a camping trip um, one weekend out of every month. It was the fall, so I assume we were in Plymouth, Massachusetts. It was dark, and I was standing on a log, sort of a log that you would sit on in front of a campfire and I it was rolling I was rolling it and I think maybe I was just trying to make people laugh and I uh, and I fell and knew immediately that I had broken my arm I've never felt that kind of pain one of the adults on the trip an old friend of the family named Don Smith took Rob to the hospital where he was fitted with a cast afterwards Mr. Smith brought Rob back to the campground and that night Rob slept in the back of a pickup while Mr. Smith slept up front, behind the wheel of the truck. And, and I remember waking up and being in such pain, and I think I waited there for, it felt like the longest time that I was just laboring over waking him up. I felt hmm. so bad waking him up. Eventually, the pain became so severe that Rob had no choice but to rouse Mr. Smith for a painkiller. I asked him what else he remembers. The way it smelled. The, the cast. Yeah. I mean, you know, your your arms covered up in plaster for five to seven weeks. And so, you know, it, it smells like a, a gym locker that hasn't been cleaned in five to seven weeks. And I remember liking the smell. That's, that's the <laughs> weird part. And getting it off. I remember getting it off. I remember getting the cast off and, uh, and it smelled terrible, of course. But good to me. I just <laughs> pretended that it smelled awful while I was drinking it in. And, uh, and my arm had just withered to nothing. It looked like a different person's arm. I can't be making that up, right? Rob fired off a series of texts to his family, recounting those memories in exhaustive detail. The campout, Mr. Smith, the cast. When he finished, his mom was the first to text back. I'm afraid you were hallucinating, sweetie. Rob tried to laugh it off, but he couldn't stop thinking about it. That evening, Rob shared his frustration with his wife. And and she patiently listened to the texts, and afterwards she smiled, and she said, I'm on your family's side. 
Gently, his wife reminded him that he's kind of absent-minded. He doesn't always have the best memory. Also, in their 16 years of marriage, Rob had never once mentioned a broken arm. Maybe Rob's mom was right. Maybe he was hallucinating. Either I'm telling the truth, Jonathan, or I'm completely insane. And it could be that I'm insane. Is Rob insane? Or had he really broken his arm? I was going to find out. But before setting forth on something like this, I need a call to arms. Something to stir my innards good. So we're going to do this. I'm going to do it. Yeah, good. My innards remain unstirred. So, I'm going to get right on this. All right, great. But just when I think that Rob will never give my innards the stirring they need... Hey, Jonathan. Yes. Go get him, you son of a bitch. That's what I was, was that waiting good? for. Yeah, that was great. That was good. I was going to say either that or get those bastards, but I'd have felt weird calling my family bastards. After the break, questioning some dirty, rotten bastards. All right, great. All right, I th- love you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Right, right back at you there. Um, right, say I, it. I want you to say it. I love you. So. What? I, I just. You'll, hello? Hello. Oh, think, yeah, I'm still here. So Laura is there as well? Yeah. You dropped out a little bit there, Jonathan. Oh, If so- you could repeat what you said, that'd be great. Rob, is Rob still there? I'm here. I'm still here. Yeah, we're both here. I think there's one little section where you dropped out a bit. I think you know what section that was, Jonathan. I was just, I was just asking if you were, if you were still. Can you hear me, Laura? Some of episode 16, Rob from Heavyweight, the show is hosted and produced by Jonathan Goldstein for Gimlet Media, and also produced by Kalila Holt, Peter Bresnan, and Stevie Lane, with editing by Jorge Just and Alex Bloomberg. And thanks to Juliet Kaplan at Gimlet for her help bringing that to you. You can find more information and links so you can listen to all of it and subscribe at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. In Simple Pleasures, the popular chef Yotam Otelengi gets some interesting guests round to his place and makes them a meal from his new cookbook. I read that you're the nicest man in Britain. That's that a true? slur. I... It's a terrible <laughs> slur, Yotam. I have to live with this, you know? Uh, I think you I'm, can. I'm, I'm a great appreciator of things, put it that way. OK. I'm not particularly nice, you know. Well, I've watched, you, I've watched you engage with this. So, sorry, this is Michael Palin. And I'm, I, there's so many titles I can give you. I'm just going to assume people would know. And then we'll talk about all the amazing things that you've done over the years. But I've watched you talk to people when you travel all over the world. And I can see why they would say that. Because when you don't share a language with someone, it's very easy to get frustrated. But for you, it seems like you, you make the most out of it. Well, it was a big challenge to me. Because I, I when I was young, I didn't travel. And I was my reluctance to travel was partly because I felt I, I won't be able to deal with the language. Language is something that's going to keep us apart. When I was asked to do Around the World in 80 Days, there was no way I could learn all the languages on the way around. So I just had to go for it and, and improvise and smile a lot and, you know, do the normal things you do when you don't know the language. And I suddenly realised that people will communicate with you. People will give back some, some hospitality, friendship. They want to. 
And they, they don't worry that you can't speak the language. They appreciate it if you know one word or something like that or a phrase. But basically, they just want to talk to you. They want to get something back as well. But it's also something wonderful for TV, these moments where you say something, obviously the other side doesn't understand. They say something you don't understand. And then you could just do whatever you like with it. Oh. It wouldn't work on a podcast. No, no. no. <laughs> it wouldn't be a different kind of podcast. <laughs> You'd have to follow it yourself with a dictionary. It's had some wonderful moments where we've just been total cross-purposes. I remember going across the Quay River and we were in a, in a little dow and I was being told to start the engine and then we talk and start the engine and off we go. And so I said this this guy, the little Vietnamese guy, OK, so start the engine now. And he goes, <laughs> yes, oh, yeah. <laughs> I said, no, no, we, we, we go across the other side of the river. He said, yeah, yeah. And he was looking at the camera all the time. I wish people and, could see uh, your face. So I said, no, so now start the engine now. And he said, start, start, start engine now. I said, yeah, start engine now. <laughs> yeah. And it was almost as though he was, thought, thought it was a comedy routine that he was applying. Eventually we got the engine started. And it was hilarious. We got across the Huey River, very beautiful. The other side, we're going to, going to eat, actually. And so I said, that's, that's fine, just stop the engine now. But stop the engine now. Stop engine now? And I said, stop the engine. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just a completely to- total sort of uh, cross-purposes. But actually, it made for a very funny sequence. Yeah. I became totally unafraid of, of, of making a fool of myself, which is something you have to get over when you're doing a travel series. Well, for a comedian, it's kind of easy, right? Like, Well, well yeah, yes. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, I like people to laugh at me, I suppose, <laughs> yeah. but you know, I like to be in control as well. Uh, but no, it was... It, it, I, I could see the funny side, but also I remember in a yurt in, in Tibet, just with a, a, a yak herder, and... We talked for about 15 minutes, neither of us understanding what the other was saying, but we were inside the yurt, his two children were there, his wife was there, sort of churning butter. And we just talked about the children. I said, there was always one isn't there who cries and the other one tries to be very nice, and he goes, he says something in Tibetan. We kind of knew through the children exactly what was going on. So it was a universal situation Fantastic. with those children and, and right. the wife cooking and all that sort of <laughs> stuff and him sitting around. So I'll be the wife cooking now, and I'll. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Uh, some I prepared some uh, char grilled grapes with burrata. Fantastic. That would be our starter with Lovely. some basil, mm. and then uh, some uh, parpadelli with harissa olives and capers. Uh, mm. So it's a kind of like a North African pasta. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And mm. uh, some gem lettuce salad with a, what I call a refrigerated dressing, which is essentially everything you have at the bottom of your fridge blitzed together. Good. Avocado and ginger, dill, basil, parsley, yeah. a bunch of other things. And then... Uh, You've obviously a, got a lot at the bottom of your game. fridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was... No, yeah. Well, that, that day there was a lot. Now yeah. it turned into a recipe, so everybody has to follow it, like, <laughs> to the T. So um, I'll just throw the pasta in. Okay. And cook that. Where did you originally learn your time? Was it sort of... At your mother's knee or uh, in, uh, something bit, you taught yourself? A little bit at my parents' knees. So my dad, you can hear it on my surname, is Italian. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Jewish Italian. And my mum is, mm. her family is from Germany. So when I was growing up oh. in Israel, there, it was very European food, Southern European and Northern yeah. European. 
Uh, but then when I walked out into the streets, you know, it was the Middle Eastern business, you know, Palestinian food, which was a completely different kind of food, you know, much less structured, much more kind of, yes. you know, in restaurants with, a, you know, just big tables full of food. Yeah. So I kind of, I think I consider myself very lucky to have been exposed to mm. quite a lot of food cultures at a very young age. And I think that affected the way I cooked. It also, I think because... I don't feel like I'm committed to one particular culture or shackled down by one tradition. You know, there is there was a lot there. So I, I kind of feel free to mix and match when I can, as long as it works. I don't know if it always works. But... Well, it's a bit like going around the world and not knowing the language. You know, you're not sure if it's going to work or not, but you've got to have a go. <laughs> you've got to have a go. And once you've um, succeeded once or twice, you yeah. just know that it works, right? And, um, Michael, so <clears throat> you traveled a lot and I was we were just talking now before we started about grandchildren when your kids were growing up were you traveling then so how was it not to, to be away from your from your family you know it sort of we didn't stop and have a great debate about it when I was going to do the long journeys it was just a lot of my work involved up to that time going away filming for three or four weeks or something like that or, or sometimes a couple of months so they were used to seeing this man disappear and always come back with something from some foreign country. We well, say, oh, yes, we've got to find that. But they got to the stage by that time. I mean, they were, they were at school, sort of, when did I do Round the World in 80 Days? 88? Yeah, so they were in their teens anyway. Yeah. And they have their own world. They were doing their own thing and getting on with life and finding out about things. And suddenly I, I was gone. And we didn't make a great big thing about it. And that was the way I preferred it. I did miss them. Um, but they, uh, you know, they, they dealt with it very well. My wife is extremely... Supportive, so, so Well, she's supportive, but also sort of very... She can look after the house extremely well. Probably looks after it better when I'm not there than when <laughs> I'm there. When you're not you know, making she's a got mess. This, yeah, she's got this system. And my eldest son, it was one of them, we were doing Full Circle, I think. He arrived fairly soon after I'd gone, and he, he said, where's Dad? And, and my wife said, he's gone, he's, gone, he's doing a series around the Pacific... How long have you gone for? Well, it could be a sort of three or four months. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I need some money. <laughs> and it was just... Was so it. I was rather... It was very nice, the way they do it. They weren't sort of, oh, Daddy, you've gone. And the same way when I came back, it wasn't really what people think. I you know, sit around the table and hear all the stories of where you've been, Traveller's Tales. I thought it would be that, but it wasn't. They were not there. Oh, no, not, you know, yeah. and they, and my wife had gone out to badminton that night or something like that. The <laughs> and you just you arrived there. There's a little note in the... You know, and and you, can't, you can't sort of expect to come back and tell them all about everywhere you've been because, you know, that, that's sort of... You have to, you have to give about, a, I, I think, several days before you really start talking about it because you forget their life has gone on. They've had their yeah. own crises, problems. You know, a teenager... They've got far more things to talk about. To, well, they won't talk about to you, but far more things have happened to, to them, probably in the short time, than happened to me, just because I've been to this country or that country. is one thing or yeah, the other. Yeah, I, I have the same. When I travel on book tours, yes. which I'm sure you do too, I come back and you're kind of on that. I come from, you know, being a few weeks. I never go for more than three weeks away. And we've got very little children. So as soon as I arrived, I walk into the door and Carl, my husband, he hands me, 
over our little son, Flynn, who is still in his nappies and goes, go change a nappy before we talk about <laughs> yes, anything yes, else. Yeah. That's the kind of, that's the, the... I'm afraid there is that, yes. Now you're <laughs> going to pay for that. Nice time abroad. And whatever you say about, oh, it was awful, you know, we cut across the desert and there was no food and, and the vehicles were falling apart and, you know, broke my leg and all that. And oh, come on, don't pretend you didn't have a good time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very hard to persuade. I get that too. Very hard to persuade one's family that going abroad is anything other than a cushy job. Some of Simple Pleasures, presented by Yotam Otelengi, featuring Michael Palin. You're listening to the Podcast Hour on RNZ National. I am woman, hear me roar, in numbers too big to ignore. And I know too much to go back and pretend. Cause I've heard in a similar vein to the popular goodnight stories for rebel girls... The ABC series Fierce Girls tells inspiring stories about Australian women that are targeted at younger listeners. After previous episodes involving athletes, aviators, scientists, tennis players and spies, The Girl Who Roared is all about the singer Helen Reddy. Among other things, she wrote the lyrics for and sang the hit I Am Woman from 1972. Helen dragged herself across the lino in the kitchen. She was struggling to move, struggling to breathe. There was no use yelling for help. Her daughter Tracy was the only one home, but she was only two. She didn't know how to call an ambulance. She didn't even know her ABCs. I just need to get to the phone, Helen puffed. Just a few more inches. She stretched out her arm, grabbing onto a dangling, curly cord. She tugged until the clunky contraption crashed to the ground. Helen double-checked the number on the fridge. It was before the days of triple zero. She used every last speck of her energy to turn the old-fashioned circle-shaped dial with her fingers. Phones didn't have voice control. They didn't even have buttons. Hello, ambulance service, the operator answered. Hello, my name is Helen Reddy. I think I've had a heart attack. Helen Maxine Reddy was sent home from the hospital the same day she was admitted. She was happy to be alive, but she was red-faced. You haven't had a heart attack, the doctor told her. You've had an anxiety attack. You just need some rest. It made sense. Helen had been seriously stressed, backflipping between worry and panic. She was about to compete in a talent quest on TV, but everyone had been telling her not to do it. You're a professional, they said. Talent quests are for amateurs. They were right. Helen had practically been born a professional. Her parents were vaudevillians. Those are performers who travelled around the country singing, acting, dancing and doing magic tricks. Helen was pulled on stage when she was only five. But she was super small and she looked like she was only three. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome baby Helen Reddy. When the spotlight hit little Helen, she knew that's where she belonged. And that's where she stayed. Helen grew into a showwoman. She wasn't mega famous, but she always had work. In clubs, theatres and on TV. 
If you lose the talent quest, your career will be over, her friend said. No one will hire you if you're a loser. But first prize was everything Helen had ever dreamt of. A trip to the USA. The home of Broadway. The home of Hollywood. The home of the biggest stars in the world. And on top of the plane ticket, there was a record deal. Helen could have her very own album. She was already 24 and had a daughter. Back then, the older a woman grew, the less likely she was to be a celebrity. And it was almost unheard of if you were a mum. I'm running out of time, Helen thought. She took a deep breath and looked in the mirror. Worrying and panicking won't get you anywhere, she told herself. Helen, ready? You're going to win that contest. Helen glued not one, not two, but three sets of false lashes on. She followed up with the thickest of thick black pencil on her eyelids. She pulled on a wig and pinned two extra hair pieces on top to make her do defy gravity. Just as she'd slipped into a flowy, white gown, there was a knock on the door. Come in, Helen called. It was one of her old stage buddies from the vaudevillian days. What are you doing here? Helen asked. He took off his hat and twiddled his thumbs. Um, Helen, he said. My cousin is one of the judges. He told me they've already picked the winner. It's not you. The contest is rigged. Helen slumped at her dressing table. It wasn't too late to pull off her lashes and storm out. I wanted you to know, the man said. So you didn't get too upset when they made the announcement. Helen lifted her head, took a deep breath, and looked in the mirror. Worrying and panicking won't get you anywhere, she told herself again. Helen, ready? You are going to win that contest. She pulled back her shoulders and opened the door for her visitor. Thank you for coming, she said. But I'm going to be so great, there'll be an uproar if I don't win first place. You'll see. I'm strong. I'm invincible. Time to meet the second contestant this week from Phillips Bandstand Starflight International. From Sydney, Helen Reddy. Helen took her place on stage. Her feet were firmly planted on the ground. She stared into the camera. She opened her mouth, but she didn't just sing. She started softly and sweetly, building up to a poppy pace and finishing with a powerful roar. The cameraman's jaw dropped. The lighting guy was mesmerised. The host was dumbfounded. The other contestants clapped half-heartedly. They knew they were toast. Then, for two long hours, the finalists had to sit behind soundproof glass, watching as the judges flailed their arms and paced around the room. It was obvious they were arguing. It was obvious Helen had ruined their plans. She was the obvious winner, and it would be an obvious scandal if they chose anyone other than her. The result was settled. The singers lined up in the studio to await their fate. 
And the winner of the Australian Bandstand Talent Contest is... Helen Reddy. How do you feel, the host asked. Helen summoned up her acting skills and told a white lie. I can hardly believe it, she said. But she knew she deserved it. Justice had been done. And just as well. All the time spent rehearsing for the contest meant Helen hadn't been earning any money. She flew to the USA with Tracy on her lap and $230 in her pocket. Mercury Records, there it was. The building on New York City's glamorous Fifth Avenue, where Helen was to receive the second part of her prize, a recording contract. Aren't you gonna leave that kid somewhere? Said the receptionist. Helen had Tracy on her hip. No, she said, she's my daughter. The receptionist raised her eyebrows and fetched a man in a suit. Welcome to New York, he said, extending his hand. Lunch is on me. I hope you enjoy your stay and have a safe flight home. Helen frowned. Hang on, what about my record deal? She asked. The man's friendly smile faded. You must have your wires crossed, he said. It was an audition for a record deal. It wasn't guaranteed. Helen placed Tracy on the ground and folded her arms. Fine, she said. When can I audition? The man put his hand on Helen's shoulder, like people do when they're about to deliver bad news, awful news. We saw you on the show, he said. You're a very good singer, but we just don't want to give a record deal to a woman. We're looking for a male group, you know, like the Beatles. Helen and Tracy were left on the street to fend for themselves, in a foreign city with barely a dime to spare. But as they looked around at the yellow taxis, the skyscrapers and the neon lights, Helen knew they wouldn't be going home. Not yet. If I have to, I can face anything, she said. Helen did what she did best. She sang and she sang and she sang some more. She sang until her throat hurt. She sang at nightclubs, hotels, restaurants, anywhere she could find a venue willing to pay, with an audience willing to listen. I was keeping body and soul together and, and I was, I just sold myself as a singer slash actor slash dancer, whatever. It was fun, but frustrating. American radio stations hardly played any music by women. In fact, they'd only leave one spot on each program's playlist for a song by a female artist. And lots of the songs they did choose made Helen yawn. There were lyrics about searching for a boyfriend, loving your boyfriend, standing by your boyfriend. There were lyrics about searching for a husband, loving your husband, standing by your husband. Boring, Helen said. Can't women sing about anything other than men? Where are the songs about us? As word spread of the talented and hard-working Australian singer who just wouldn't give up, important people in the music industry started to listen. 
She became besties with an Australian journalist who made sure she always mentioned Helen in the entertainment section of the newspaper. Who is this Helen Reddy? People would ask at fancy parties. Have you heard of Helen Reddy? Helen Reddy, they say she's the next big thing. But her best break came when a TV host invited Helen on his show as a guest. A record industry executive was watching and he liked what he saw. Helen Reddy, I'm Artie Mogul from Capitol Records. How would you like a recording contract? Nothing major, just two songs for now, to test you out. Helen almost leapt out of her skin with joy. Yes, she said. If I have to, I can do anything. Some of Helen Reddy, the girl who roared from the ABC series Fierce Girls, narrated by the conservationist Madison Stewart, a.k.a. Shark Girl. That story is produced by Rebecca Armstrong and Laura McAuliffe, written by Samantha Turnbull, with sound engineering from Judy Rapley. And you can find links and more information about where to listen to the rest of that and other episodes and how to subscribe at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. Soon you'll be able to listen to daily news podcasts all day, every day, if you want. The Daily from the New York Times started last January, then came shows like NPR's Up First and Today Explained from Vox. Now everyone else seems to want in on the action. The Guardian, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC and NZME have all launched daily news podcasts in the last few months. Just this week, the Washington Post launched Post Reports, delivered each day in time for the US evening commute. And newsroom.co.nz is getting funding to make a daily 15 to 20 minute news and current affairs show called Daily Podcast for RNZ. Here's the CBC's front burner, looking at Google's plans to turn an area of Toronto into a high-tech testing lab for cities of the future. So we're in Sidewalk Labs Welcome Centre. I think that's probably the best way to describe it. It looks like a welcome centre. Hi. Are you Jesse? Yeah. Hi, I'm Shannon. I work for CBC. Hey. Do you have a second if I ask you, like, two questions? Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm Jesse Chapins, um, and I'm the director of Public Realm at Sidewalk Labs. We are at an inflection point with how technology is influencing our lives and influencing our cities. And rather than let that sort of run roughshed, can we be proactive in thinking about how to use that to make our cities better for as many people as possible? There's not a malicious intent here. People might want to look for that, but that's fundamentally not the case. Hello, I'm Jamie Poisson. So that was me and our producer, Shannon Higgins, talking with Jesse Shapins about Sidewalk Toronto. It's a plan to create a futuristic neighborhood on waterfront property right in downtown Toronto. And as you just heard, Jesse says there's no malicious intent coming from Google's parent company, which is behind the project. But a lot of people are having a hard time buying that. And depending on who you ask, Sidewalk Toronto is either the solution to our urban woes, or a techno-utopian Trojan horse. That's today on FrontBurner. I'm Matthew Braga. I'm a senior technology reporter with uh, CBC News. Hi, Matt. Hi, Jamie. So I'm hoping you can help me start this story by taking us back to something that Google's co-founder Larry Page said, way back 
in 2013. Well, there's many, many exciting and important things you could do that you just can't do because they're illegal and they're not allowed by regulation. And that makes sense. We, we don't want our world to change too fast. But maybe we should set aside a small part of the world. You know, I like going to Burning Man, for example. Um, that's an environment where people can try out different things, but not everybody has to go. I think as technologists, we should have some safe places where we can try out some new things and figure out what is the effect on society, uh, what's the effect on people, without having to deploy it kind of into the normal world. And people who like those kinds of things can go there and, and experience that. And we don't have mechanisms for that. Matt, I'm going to let you take this. What did we just hear? <laughs> so at a conference in 2013, Google has this annual conference they call Google I.O. And back in 2013, Larry Page uh, surprised everyone, came up on stage, and just started taking questions from the audience. And in the course of one of his answers to, to one of these questions, uh, just started laying out this almost just like he had pulled this idea out of his head. Like, what if... What if we just had a place to experiment? What if we could take all of the cool things that we're doing with technology and just just kind of prototype and experiment in this place where where we wouldn't have to deal with uh, rules and regulations and all the things that are part of a city? And so is it fair to say that this is like the first hint that Google <laughs> might be interested in building a city? I think at the time everyone – we joked about it. We we said, oh, it's, it's this vision for Google Island or, or Google City. Uh and and I think it was a little bit of a simpler time where it was funnier to joke about, I think, in large part because we thought, oh, you know, like, is that actually going to happen? Like, are we actually going to to see this sort of vision realized? I mean, this was a company that couldn't even figure out how to build a successful social network. Google is shutting down its social network, Google Plus, after the private data of up to 500,000 users was potentially exposed. Google has known about the bug since March, but didn't tell users about it until the Wall Street Journal revealed the issue. Right? I mean, let alone can we expect them to, to build a city. But I think over time, we started to see that perhaps that vision wasn't as fanciful as some people might have thought. Okay, so how does this become a little bit more of a reality? Like, how do we start to see this evolve? So Larry Page talks about this, maybe Google Island, Google Neighborhood, whatever you want to call it. And then a couple of years later, actually announces that, you know what, Google is going to spin off a new company, and we're going to call it Sidewalk Labs. And the whole idea behind Sidewalk Labs is to take technology and try to use it to make cities better and smarter and operate more efficiently. It was sort of a, uh, a continuation in some ways of that, that idea that Larry put out a couple of years prior of, yeah, what if we had sort of looser regulations or a, an environment that was a little bit more free to tinker with? We had, like a technological Burning Man. Yeah. <laughs> and it really kind of did in some ways follow in that Burning Man ethos, right, which is very much, you know, how can we – create a new communal way of living from nothing, right? It's like the city that emerges from the dust of the desert from scratch. And so it doesn't surprise me that you have someone like Larry who goes to this every year and says, well, what if we did that? What if we set something up from scratch, but uh, but in more of a googly way? In more of a googly way. Okay, so Sidewalk Labs is a company owned by Google? Sidewalk Labs is a company that was created by Google, but then 
couple years ago, if you'll recall, uh, Google created a parent company called Alphabet, which Google now sits under. Sidewalk Labs also sits under as well. So yes. Google, Sidewalk Labs, owned by Alphabet. Got it. And then now, where does Toronto fit into this? So last year, uh, Waterfront Toronto, which is this government agency, part city, part provincial, part federal, uh, in the city of Toronto, they're responsible for the development of Toronto's waterfront. And they had this derelict portion of the waterfront uh, along the city's eastern side, and uh, it was called Keyside. And they, this being Waterfront Toronto, said, hey, we want someone to redevelop this land. And not only do we want someone to redevelop this land, we also want someone who can be a partner with us, someone who can innovate and provide funding. And we're really going to like co-create this like new thing that hasn't existed before. And they solicited some plans. And fast forward to the fall of 2017, and Sidewalk Labs is one of the companies that submits a plan. Toronto's in an elite class of cities in North America, San Francisco, New York City, just a handful of others that are so popular, have such great demand that it also poses incredible challenges of growth. So really, Sidewalk Labs is a solution to this derelict stretch of land in Toronto that the government has been struggling to develop for years. I, I know this piece of land it sucks. It's it's very barren. <laughs> People have wanted it to be developed for a long time. And so in a way, is it fair to say that Sidewalk Labs provided a solution to that? They came in with a, a fanciful vision document for what this neighborhood and even like a larger part of the city uh, could be at its most connected. It's most sort of technologically infused. And so they really took a lot of the little kind of experiments and prototypes that uh, certainly Larry had kind of hinted at and that Sidewalk had been tinkering with since its founding and said, what if we applied that to an entire neighborhood, an entire section of a city? And so they came in and covered everything from transit, so self-driving cars. Another solution we might explore is using autonomous vehicles as a kind of shared fleet or shuttle service. Traffic cameras with AI built into them. And then in real time, decide, I'm going to hold the cars until this person has safely made it across. To, you know, sensors that could uh, look at sort of the temperature and the air quality and whether the, the city was being especially polluting uh, that day. Uh, garbage cans that knew when they were full, little robots underground that could shepherd garbage back and forth. Uh, it really tried to look at all of the parts of a city and how you could take technology to, to really just solve all those little challenges and annoyances and, and, and uh, struggles of, of daily life. I, I think I read something about self-melting sidewalks too, right? <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, you know, taking ideas like how do you make a city more functional throughout the year? So sidewalks that can heat up and melt the snow away or awnings that can sort of come out from buildings and cover sidewalks when it rains so you can bike more days of the year. Stuff, stuff like that that there's a technology component, but there's also sort of a, a, I guess, urbanist slant that all of this is is wrapped in. Jamie Poisson speaking to technology reporter Matthew Braga on CBC's Front Burner. And in case you're wondering, they do go on to talk about some of the downsides to this project as well, things like data collection, privacy, and how much Google stands to gain versus Toronto's residents. In Eating Fried Chicken in the Shower, the comedian James Nokise gets eight well-known New Zealanders to open up about their mental health. They're in his shower, they stay clothed, there's no water, 
but there is fried chicken. Here he is chatting to the actor and playwright Rob Mokaraka, who was shot by police in 2009 after a confrontation he basically engineered to end his own life. What chicken are we eating? Chicken krage, my favourite. This is my favourite. That's Japanese chicken. Japanese cousin. Why? Why are we eating Japanese chicken? Why is a Maori and a Samoan <laughs> in a shower in New Zealand eating Japanese chicken? A lot of therapists will be asking us the same thing. <laughs> but well, I think it's that they've got a fine art form yeah. of, for making chicken. Mmm. Oh yeah. That's beautiful. Oh man. There is aroha in that chicken. <laughs> and I think I'm just by tasting it had a peaceful death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we have we have something very unusual in common, which is we are both uh, with suicide survivors. Yes, we are. Yeah, mm. be the right, right mm. Although uh, in in your particular case, uh, my bro, yes, uh, your, yours was a lot louder uh, than mine. In two thousand and nine, do you remember what had led up to? Yeah, what, what was the, the things that really just drove it? Was it just, was it withholding or what was? It was, this is what happened. So I say this in shop routine. Mm. Uh, I was on a crazy relationship. Mm-hmm. We're both swirling in the storm. Mm. None of us recognised it. We were mm. just being ourselves. And uh, I thought I needed to get off this crazy relationship. So I went to sleep with another woman. Yeah, right. I say this in the show. Mm. I come back to the current one. She said, did you sleep with it? I went, yeah. Thinking, it's going to be a relief. We're going to break up. Mm. But she held me too close. Close. Mm. She got a bit cray cray on it. Mm. And get me close, 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 close. And so all these things started to come up and I'm like trying to push it down. I didn't know what was happening to me. I go, something's going to happen. So over six days I didn't have any drinks or drugs. Mm. I just went, I have to be clean because I don't know what's happening. Because mm. something was just f***ing like, something was shaking within me, bro. And I felt it was going to burst. And I didn't know what was going to happen. Because it's a very, um, it's, it's a very unusual uh, path. My language will be clumsy here. So no, I you're good, bro. Go. You're good. But you know, path to suicide, to um, for myself, uh, my my options were uh, cutting and uh, traffic. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> neither neither of which, uh, thankfully, uh, were effective. Mm. Um, but you you chose uh, police intervention. Yeah, and I say this in shop, bro. Around that when I'm doing my my show, mm. is that. Um, I ring the police because growing up as a kid, mm. um, I uh, I'd seen the police shoot Māori on the news, right or wrong. Mm. So uh, these aren't preconceived thoughts; they're just rolling in mm. uh, mm. while I'm under duress of the suicidal thoughts. Mm. And I also thought I deserved a very violent death because I thought I was that shit. Yeah, right. Because there's a voice inside of me telling me how shit I am. Mm. Oh, that's powerful, brother. I think a lot of people don't understand that when we talk about voices, mm. not necessarily the cartoonish, yeah. um, you know, the, the movie kind of devil on the shoulder kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's your own voice, isn't it? Like it's, it's your own voice. And also, I feel like it's also it could be voices from your past, mm. from parents, uh, uncles, aunties, whatever people that you've met. They've told you a shit, and you start to believe it. Mm. And it's just when um, what's it? Mike King calls it the inner critic. Yeah. And I just go, I go, yeah, I agree. And for me, it's um, unresolved trauma, mm. Unres- and from the past, so it just keeps echoing. So mm. you got to you got to go and face it. Well, I had to go and face it. I didn't even know I was going to be that public. Because <laughs> when I was on the cray-cray train, mm. and in the storm of, I call it the storm, the storm of depression and suicidal thoughts, mm. I just thought there was only me and um, one policeman. Yeah. Right. But it was a whole community watching. 
Yeah. Mm. So, um, how many how many cops were there in the end? I didn't count. No, um, but I only saw two. Well, right. And but um, apparently there's quite a few of them. Yeah. I remember it, um, and we didn't really know each other uh, back then, but we knew lots of the same people, uh, and it really, you know, you got you got shot, but Maori and Pacifica performers, you know, it, everyone was like. Uh, it was going, did you hear about Rob? Did you hear about Rob? I uh, said, so for me, I was going, who's Rob? <laughs> <laughs> that guy. That, oh, oh, that guy. Oh. But were you aware of how big, like it was a nationwide story? Like, I suppose I was too traumatised at the time, but it became more uh, aware to me that the media were everywhere. And they started to harass and haunt my family, like mm. just unrealistic numbers, ringing my grandmother, harassing her for a story. Oh. And she's like, who's this? Mm. I'm here to help Rob. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the media were also chasing me through court cases. So they were like a hungry pack of dogs. Mm. And I realized that uh, the media at that time wanted to be the first to take a bite out of me mm. and go, yes, I got first blood. Mm. I got first blood. Doesn't have to have any facts in it. Mm. It can be made up, which they did make some shit up, mm. which upset my family. So it was quite traumatizing on top of the traumatization of. Yeah. Um, but it made me realize that uh, not all journalists, but there's quite a few of them that are just all about the story and there's no humanity. Mm. Hashtag not all journalists. But let's do a moment when you realize, go, oh, everyone, everyone's seen. Well, I, this is what happened, bro. I woke up in hospital mm. with my guts wide open with machines and beeping sounds. And I, like I woke up, woke up from a nightmare mm. and, I, and I woke up and I was like, oh, I'm in so much pain. And the first thing I thought of was, I hope my dad doesn't know. Oh, man. It's the first thought that came to my head. I was like, oh, my dad doesn't know. I didn't realise. It took quite a while. Mm. Quite a few. I was in hospital, Auckland hospital for seven weeks, Whangarei hospital for two weeks um, and I had friends go from London because mm. we just did train dressing places in London of course people heard about it in London my mate was in Africa on holiday mm. he said he drank a whole bottle of tequila just to try and get his head around it because we were hanging out yeah, yeah, nobody yeah. knew because I was putting on the mask bro mm. and, and I was mentally spiritually physically just screwed up Mm. And I was just used to keeping that mask on of smiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Defense mechanism smile. A smile. Don't let anyone know. <laughs> Don't. And I, I was, yeah, this Tanifa, I sort of talked about it before. Mm. This Tanifa could be a demon, could be, you know, the mental manifestation of a black dog mm. and a spiritual manifestation. It keeps people silent. Like, I've seen it physically. People just, they want to say it, but they... Mm. And then some people put a hand over their mouth because mm. they can't say it. Mm. So this thing, which is a mental and spiritual thing, coming through a Māori perspective, uh, you need to talk it into the light, brother. Mm. Because it, it's the silence. Having a problem doesn't kill us. Mm. The silence is killing us. Mm. And that's what the Tanifa loves. That's what this black dog loves. Is that part of why you, you're a bro who got shot? Yeah. And your show is called Shop Bro. Yeah. Is part of you naming that to, to like, you're bringing it into the light, but also to remind yourself to keep it light? Yeah, because uh, it's, it's funny, dark, mm. real. And when I first pitched it to a couple of mates, I went, oh, it's a bit dark, bro. 
it is a bit dark. And I went, too soon? <laughs> <laughs> I was the one saying, too soon? They were like, oh, yeah, bro, that's way too soon. I was just, it's just, I thought, oh, that's the name of the show. And I kept it. Like, people said, you shouldn't say that. Maybe change it to a different name. And it was helping me using humour mm. to open up Shop Row mm. into a theatre show, which someone said, because I'm in it, they go, it's more like a theatre show combined with a seminar. Mm. So you, I'm using this as a tool for education and healing, and using humour mm. as a way to unlock some very heavy subject material. Such a relief. My first, I think my first stand-up comedy set came from my grandfather's funeral, and just wow. hanging around with the cousins at the end of the night, just talking about all the weird relatives we had. Oh, bro. I'm just going to share a little story. Uh, it was a really sad one because a friend of mine, a year and a half ago, took his life. Mm. So I just I was a day late to the tangi, but I got there and I was there with his wife and his kids. And she said, um, lots of people turned up, but she said it was funny because the priest was uh, doing a ceremony and then it was so hot that somebody fainted and the ambulance had to come pick them up and carry the fainted person out. And the priest went, well, that's a first, someone being carried out. <laughs> and, um, and apparently just broke all this tension because it was so heavy. And this is his wife telling me. Yeah. And I went, oh, it, it gave me a lot of joy to hear that. And I was so glad I wasn't there because I think I would have been way, but a huge wreck. Also, man, I've been doing stand-up for 15 years, yeah. like all over the world. I don't know if I'd have the stones to drop that line at a funeral. <laughs> well, it's pretty massive, but I think it's a timing thing. You've got to know your audience. It's true. <laughs> Rob Mokoraka speaking to James Nokise in Eating Fried Chicken in the Shower, and that's produced by Charlie Bleakley for RNZ. You can hear the rest of that interview on Nights on RNZ this Wednesday, just after 9pm. And you can also find other episodes, including interviews with Hayley Holt and Josh Thompson, wherever you get your podcasts, and at rnz.co.nz forward slash series. That's about all from the podcast hour for now. We've been listening to Heavyweight, Simple Pleasures, Fear Skills, Front Burner and Eating Fried Chicken in the Shower. For now, from me, Richard Scott, see you. I'll be back next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.